the preaching of the gospel. Most don't believe, and so if you are going to preach the gospel, be prepared to be rejected, be prepared to be mocked. But by the grace of God, and unfortunately it's not as often, but if you are blessed enough to see it, you can experience and see the miracle of somebody being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life through the preaching of the gospel. Okay, well, we're back in Acts chapter 17, if you want to turn your Bibles there with me. We do have to be out of here by 4.15, 4.30-ish, so I'm starting a clock here to make sure I don't get us in trouble. Acts chapter 17. I entitled this, He Has Fixed a Day for Judgment. He has fixed a day for judgment. I'm going to read verses 30 and 31 just as an introduction to this passage. And then we'll pray. Acts chapter 17 verse 30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Let's pray. Well, Father, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us, Lord, that we can have in our hands the the prophets. We can have the apostles' writings, Lord, that we have all of this revelation concerning your son, Lord. We pray that that as we study the book of Acts, as we read about Paul and, and these other faithful men, that we would likewise be willing to speak and to be willing to warn and to be willing to tell people of the only hope that you provided is in your Son. And we thank you for the resurrection We thank you for what this means. We thank you for what it means for us. Lord, we pray that that we would be stirred up and provoked just as Paul was to such an extent that he he spoke to others, Lord. We pray that we'd be given not a fear of man, but a fear of you that that would cause us to represent you in this world rightly, Lord. Help us to do it rightly and well in a way that's pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, Acts chapter 17. If you recall, the beginning of Acts chapter 17 was where Paul, Silas, and Timothy went to Thessalonica. They got run out of Thessalonica by the Jews. They went to Berea. They got run out of Berea by the Jews. 
The Jews actually chased them down. The Jews came from Thessalonica, chased them down in Berea, ran them out of Berea. And so now we find the Apostle Paul literally on the run for his life. Um, Silas and Timothy have taken him down to a, to the port to a port city and sailed him off to Athens. They sent off Paul to Athens. He's actually now by himself in Athens. He's He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to him. I don't know why they didn't sail with him at this point. Um, But for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't tell us. But for whatever reason, the Apostle Paul is now uh, by himself in the city of Athens. And he's there waiting. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to him, uh, to assist him and to help him in his evangelistic missionary endeavors. So Paul's in Athens, and what we're going to see today is a little different than what we've previously seen from the Apostle Paul um, in his evangelism and in his preaching. It's a little different. Previously, I mean, Paul has gone to, he's been going to Gentile, he's in Europe now, he's in Gentile cities, he's far away from Israel, he's, he's gone to Gentile cities and to Gentile uh, peoples, But because of Paul's custom, because he always first goes to the synagogue, we've primarily seen him uh, ministering, evangelizing, preaching to Jews. And he's been preaching very Jewish sermons. But but today, uh, Paul's going to find himself uh, well outside of the synagogue we're going to find uh, what, it, what is one of Paul's famous sermons from Acts chapter 17. It's famous because we find Paul now preaching to an audience not full of Jews, but full of pagans. Paul's preaching to pagans now. And it's not just your kind of run-of-the-mill pagans like these just godless people who don't know their left from their right and are just acting like animals. No, these are your more um, sophisticated kind of pagan. These pagans have gods, they have goddesses, they have temples, they have a whole culture surrounding this worship of their gods. These are the intellectually studied pagans. These are what you might consider Uh, the Ivy League college professors of the first century. That's who Paul is speaking to today. So there's a couple things to note, I think, and this is what I think maybe you should be trying to listen to as we go through Paul's sermon and even leading up to the sermon are, are two things. What are the differences in which, in which, in how the apostle Paul attempts to minister to these pagans? Versus the Jews that we've been hearing him minister to. What, are there, is there any things he does differently with these pagans as he preaches to them than he's, than he's done with the Jews previously? And then secondly, as we go through this sermon, listen to see if you can pick up the similarities. What are the things that do not change in the way that Paul preaches to the Jew who knows the Bible and in the way he preaches to the pagan who has no clue about the Bible? What are the... What are the differences and what are the similarities? A lot of people 
When they go to Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17 is kind of famous, in essence, for the differences. People emphasize the distinctions, the differences that Paul makes when he's preaching to the pagan. But I actually think, and there's a lot of similarities, but I think there's more similarities um, than there is differences in the way Paul ministers to even to the pagans who don't know their Bible. I'd say there's more, there's more continuity. It's, it's more similar than it is different. So let's jump in here. Acts chapter 17. We're picking up where we left off. We're now in verse 16. It says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, the them is Timothy and Silas, he's waiting for them, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, let's just stop there and, and realize what you probably already know, but Athens, being a Greek city, was, was fully polytheistic. Polytheistic meaning you believe in a lot of gods, more than one, but they're fully polyistic. They believe in many gods, and with those many gods, there was many idols in this city. Um, there's a famous quote concerning Athens It is said that one would be more likely to run into a god than a man in Athens. That's how many idols there were. You're more likely to run into an idol to to run into a god than you would to run into another human being. So Paul shows up to Athens and finds this to be true. He, He sees all the idolatry. He sees all the false worship. This was first century Athens in I always, when I talk about these cities, I go to Google Earth, I look around them, I, I poke around to see what the cities look like now. Um, if you have any questions about Athens, Margaret can tell you, because Margaret used to live there, how long, three years in Athens? Yeah, three years in Athens. So it's still a very interesting city. This place where the Apostle Paul's going to go preach is still there today. You can still see the ruins of of this area, the, the Mars Hill, where he's going to preach. It's still there. You can go look at it on Google Earth or, or search for it. So the Apostle Paul is here in, in Athens. He's seeing these idols. He sees the temples for all these gods, the Parthenon. He sees certainly the, the famous temple, the great temple that is for the goddess Athena. The goddess Athena is where Athens gets its name. Athena is the god, uh, primary god worship there, and so Athens takes its name from that. But, but notice this, that as Paul is in Athens, and he's seeing what are certainly aesthetically like beautiful buildings, beautiful uh, architecture, the Apostle Paul does not sit back and admire the beauty of these buildings. He doesn't sit back and and wonder at, oh, how wonderful is the architecture and how beautiful is the buildings. That's not at all what the Apostle Paul, that's not what his reaction was. It's said in our verse that his spirit was provoked. He was deeply troubled that all of these people were worshiping idols, that they weren't worshiping the true and living God. And I as I read even this first verse, I thought there's already application for us um, who live 
in a country that's becoming more and more secularized, more and more pagan in essence. Um, Almost everywhere we look, we see sin, we see idolatry. Um, These things should bother you. These things should not be comfortable to you. You don't want to be like Lot's wife and be comfortable in Sodom, right? These things should provoke you. Uh, They should provoke you to the extent that they did the Apostle Paul, that when you see the evil, you see the wickedness, it provokes you to say something, to speak. And that's what it does for the Apostle Paul. He's going to speak and He's supposed to be in waiting mode. He's supposed to be there waiting for Silas and Timothy. But Paul could not refrain. He could not help himself from speaking to the people in Athens. So look at verse 17. He's provoked in his spirit. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace. Every day with those who happened to be there. So per routine for the Apostle Paul, he does go to the synagogue. There is a synagogue uh, in Athens even. And he goes there and he ministers to them. But then it says he ventures out. He ventures out to the marketplace. And the ESV says... He shows up to the marketplace. This is where the people are. And everybody who is anybody, you know, that can get out, goes to the marketplace. This is where people gather. This is where people uh, see each other and speak to each other and interact. It says that he goes here and he's reasoning with them. He's reasoning every day with whoever is there. The, the King James Bible actually translates this, that the Apostle Paul was there disputing with whoever was there. You, you could even translate it debating. Yes, the Apostle Paul debated. Um, he's engaging with whoever in whatever worldview that he finds. And if you try to put yourself there, um, as Paul's in the marketplace amongst the people and he's reasoning with them, he's disputing with them, he's evangelizing them, Surely this looks very much like just what it looks like when we go out into the streets or to the school and we're evangelizing. It would not look much different than it does for us. When you're engaging the people, there's back and forth, there's challenges, there's, there's questions that go back and forth. And this is just the nature of, of uh, engaging people uh, with the gospel and with the truth, and if I had to guess, I would assume the Apostle Paul is uh, much more comfortable probably in the synagogue, right, amongst his fellow Jews and interacting with the Bible there. I'm sure that's much more comfortable, but being that that may be the more comfortable place for Paul to evangelize, it did not keep him from, from stepping out to engage the pagans, um, people Uh, that he doesn't know, and a lot of things about paganism that that Paul might think just like we think. "Ah, I'm kind of afraid to go engage these people. They might know something or believe something or have a question I can't answer. There's a a fear there 
But that doesn't stop the Apostle Paul from engaging these pagans. And so he shows up, he's willing, he's willing to engage with whoever the Lord brings his way. And verse 18 tells us, who does the Lord bring his way? It says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And they said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So, Luke chooses to point out these two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Um, Both of these groups are what you would call deists. Deists are people who believe that there is divine beings or a divine being, but they don't believe that, that God is very active in the world. God's not involved uh, very much with the world. So these Epicureans, who they, they followed Epicurus. Well, they believed when, the, when you die, the body just uh, goes away. You basically cease from existing. And if that's true, if there's no judgment, there's no afterlife, well, the whole point of life must be to just... Um, Seek pleasure, enjoy life as much as you can, and avoid pain, avoid trouble as much as you can. And that was, and that was the, the summary of their worldview. Uh, you have the Stoics. The Stoics there engaging Paul. Uh, they believe that man attains his highest, his highest point in life when he fully submits himself to the fatalism that is life, meaning they believed in an in a ultimate determinism that whatever's going to happen to you is going to happen, and, to, and to, to rightly represent and to be a good stoic, you have to uh, take the good in life, the bad in life, the same. You, you, you take it, they, we call them somebody looks like a stoic when they don't show any emotions. They just, everything they take in, they're just very collected, that stoic face. This is coming from the ideas that the Stoics just believed. Uh, when bad things happen, you just take it. When good things happen, you don't get too excited. You just take it. This is what life brings you. You accept it as it comes. And this was, this was their worldview. So they had these very defined, these very articulated concepts of the world. And as we look at these worldviews, they seem very simplistic to us. They seem silly. But these were the intellectual elites of the time. These were the, the, the smartest people. These who were people looked to for their philosophies and for their thinking. So it would be like if you found yourself evangelizing at uh, these Ivy League schools like uh, Cambridge or Harvard, something like that. You're on the school campus evangelizing, but you're not talking to the students you're talking to the professors at these schools. And so that's another level of interaction there that's, that's going on. So um, the second part there of verse 18, I think, is, is important because now uh, the, it actually mentions the content of Paul's message. What did they hear Paul preaching? I'll read it again. It said, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. That sounds like something we would expect Paul to preach, right? Jesus and the resurrection. But what's interesting is how these Epicureans, these Stoics, how they, how they received Paul's message, how, how they heard it. Um, remember, the, the gospel, the, the message of Jesus has never reached this far. This is seemingly the first time these people have heard of Jesus. And they get the message very twisted up. Um, they hear him preaching Jesus and the resurrection and seemingly somehow think that the Apostle Paul is actually preaching two gods to them, Jesus and the resurrection. And we think, how could somebody, why would somebody think that that's what was being said? Um, well, if you notice there at the, the end of verse 18, it said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, plural. They're hearing Paul preach multiple, multiple gods, multiple divinities. Um, and so they think that, that, that Paul's preaching Jesus and the resurrection and in, the, the word resurrection in Greek, anastasis, is feminine. It's in a feminine form. And so the commentators think that these guys apparently thought, you know, you had Jesus and feminine resurrection, and these are the two gods. You have to realize these people are fully polytheistic. They assume multiple gods. So when they're hearing Paul preaching, um, they misunderstand. They misunderstand what Paul is teaching. And I think that can be helpful for us because we would say Paul is a, is, is, is a master of presenting Jesus, of presenting the gospel. And if people can misunderstand Paul and confuse Paul, um, who's preaching it as well as I think a human being can preach it, um, maybe we, it takes a little pressure off us when people misunderstand us, right? I mean, we're not preaching it as, as well as Paul would. And people misunderstand us and we get, I think, hurt and offended that maybe we're not as clear as we, we thought we were. But people misunderstood Jesus. People misunderstood Paul. So this is another, another part of evangelism. Another part of attempting to minister to people is there's misunderstandings. So Paul, in verse 19 and following, he's going to correct. He's going to clarify. He's going to get to speak more on this. Um, he's going to correct these misunderstandings. Verse 19. So they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is in Greek, the hill of Ares. Uh, the Romans referred to this hill as Mars Hill. That's why this sermon's called his famous Mars Hill sermon. And the Areopagus was just, um, it's like the city council area. This is where people would have gone. New teaching comes into the city. These people kind of check that teaching and affirm or deny and then allow somebody to continue teaching or not. So that's, Paul's getting checked out here. Um, so they're bringing him to the Areopagus. And um, it says, he was, they were saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul's asked to expand upon his teaching of Jesus and the resurrection. And as always, Paul is more than willing to oblige and to preach. And so here we go. Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. And I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So, as we begin Paul's sermon here, I think it's important to note how Paul starts off his, his sermon, his teaching. Because what Paul does not do, Paul does not put um, his knowledge of God on an equal level with, with these polytheists that he's talking to. Um, Paul actually mentions and establishes and brings to the forefront the reality of these people's ignorance and even their self-awareness of being ignorant. They have this, this idol, this God that they've set up that they actually, they apparently know nothing about, the unknown God, and they're kind of like trying to just cover their bases in case they missed a God. Um, there's another unknown God there. But Paul pings on this. Paul, Paul jumps on this unknown God they have. And as Paul mentions this unknown God and kind of starts by mentioning this unknown God, many people with Acts chapter 17, with the Mars Hill sermon, as they look at this, um, they, they want to take Paul's approach as he mentions their gods, as he appeals to their gods. Um, he's going to quote their poets, their philosophers in a minute. We'll see that. He'll actually quote some of their, their poets. They want to approach Paul's sermon as if Paul is simply or, or only arguing from this shared, kind of neutral, agreed-upon uh, platform that Paul has with these pagans. And most people who kind of argue for this or try to emphasize this are really doing that for the motive and for the reason is they want to have, they want to use this text as an excuse to not be very explicit or forthright about their presentation of Jesus. They, 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 they don't want to offend the modern skeptic or the intellectual, and so they very much want to keep the argument, keep the discussion in a very secular, kind of agreed-upon neutral, uh, uh, neutral realm in hopes of not offending the unbeliever. And so they, they like Acts chapter 17 because, hey, look, Paul's mentioning their gods and he's quoting their poets. And um, I think they're making too much out of that. They attempt to do too much with that. I think a more careful read, as we're going to see, um, is that, yes, Paul mentions these things. He, he, 
he mentions this unknown God. He's going to quote their poets. Um, and he's just, he's just grabbing something to direct the conversation with. He's, he is finding some, in essence, common ground, something to ping on, something to, to grab a hold of. But you have to notice, and it's, it's clear if you just read through the passage, is that Paul does not stay there. Paul does not, he does not, his, his foundation, his grounds for arguing is not from Greek gods or not even from their poets. Uh, Paul immediately moves from these things to preach the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ uh, in particular. And so I think that there is a very natural, real place for for discernment when you evangelize different people, right? There, there is an aspect of, of friendship evangelism, right? There's this mode you get into where it's good and right and helpful to be friendly to people, to be their friends when you want to share Jesus with them. But as Paul does here, you can't stay there. You can't stay in friendship evangelism mode you have to, at some point, and the goal, I think, should be as quickly as possible, transition into actual evangelism mode, where you actually share Christ. Um, and I think that's what, that's what we see Paul doing. Paul's very quickly now, I mean, even in verse 24 here, he's going to move on to proclaim God to them. Um, he's going to relate to them the facts that God has actually revealed himself even to them. And that ignorance of God is, is not even an option. So let's see how Paul does that. Verse 24. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So I think even here already you see that Paul is in no way uh, attempting to remain neutral, because right out of the gate, Paul is actually challenging the very core theological beliefs that these people hold. Um, Paul mentions the God. Paul speaks of one God who made all things. That's in direct opposition to what they believe. They believe in many gods. No, Paul preaches to them one God. Secondly, he mentions that this God, the God of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples. Well, that's exactly what these people believe. They, they have set up all of these temples. They serve their God in these temples. Um, but Paul is making the point here that all of these temples, the Parthenon, this, this temple for Athena, these are all, in essence, a waste of time and are not true worship. Uh, the gods of the Athenians were dependent on their service in the temples. But in contrast, Paul's God, the God of the Bible, who is the God of all men, including the Athenians, he's not dependent on man at all. Just the opposite. 
these Athenians that Paul's preaching to were totally dependent upon this God, Paul says, for even their very breath. And so you can see how Paul is not uh, restraining himself, but he's pushing right on their theological buttons. He's not tiptoeing around the truth with these folks. Um, He continues, verse 26, he says, speaking of the one true God, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So Paul, in essence, references the creation account. He, he references these truths found in Genesis. And in so doing, he declares to them the absolute sovereignty of God over all of man's affairs. And this is a meticulous sovereignty to the point, the examples that Paul uses is Paul says this sovereign God determines where people are going to live. He determines even how long people are going to live. He says, from one man all of, all of mankind uh, came from. So Paul uh, has no evolutionary development in his gospel presentation. There's just one sovereign God who from one man made the nations and determines really everything about their life. Now, as Paul goes on, he's going to tell them that despite their claimed ignorance of God, they have this unknown God, they're, they're admitting some ignorance here. Despite all that, the true God has actually condescended and has had all this intimate interaction with his creation for a reason. So why has God uh, been so? And all of this is directly opposed to their deism. They don't think God is very active uh, in humans' lives. Well, Paul's saying, no, he's active in every sense. Paul is determining how long you're going to live, where you're going to live. Your very breath is determined by him. He's directly opposing everything they believe about God. But Paul's saying the reason Paul, the reason, uh, Paul is saying the reason God is so intimately involved with his creation, why he directs all of creation is verse 27. The reason the reason God is so actively involved is that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. So, God is intimately involved with his creation. And Paul can, so much so, Paul can say that he's not far from each one of us. God is intimately involved in every aspect of your life, even your breath. God is right there. Now, as true as that is, there is a problem. And here, what is obviously, I think, a summary from Luke about Paul's sermon, there is a problem. I think God created the world for such a reality that we could live, breathe, and relate to the God that is there that's giving us all these things. But a problem did enter into the world that, that in essence kind of throws a monkey wrench into us being able to 
seek and find this God. And that problem is the result of sin, the result of our sinful nature. The, the problem with, with our sin nature now is that we do know that God is there, but we don't reach out for him. Because of our sin, we don't reach out for the God that we know is there. And instead of taking advantage of the fact that God's revealed himself in such an intimate way, we suppress that truth in our unrighteousness, in our sin. And what ends up happening, we end up just groping around in the darkness, um, in essence, making up a God that we can relate to, that we can see, that we can touch. And mankind makes idols instead of actually coming to a true knowledge of our Creator. The reality that men have this, what we refer to as like a Romans 1 knowledge of God. I mentioned it to the kids today that by what is made, we realize, we understand that, that God is there, that God is created. And the Athenians know this. They've, they've, they've even made an idol to this unknown God. They've, they've realized their ignorance concerning this God that is there. And it's also admitted in some of the Greeks' own writings, in their poets. And the Apostle Paul's not ignorant of the writings of the poets of the Athenians. The Apostle Paul was raised in Tarsus. And Tarsus was no slouch. It was, an, it was also an intellectual city, very prominent intellectual city. And Paul's able to quote um, some of these philosophers to bolster his point and to make his argument. Look at verse 28. In verse 28, there's actually two quotes here from the Athenians, from these Greek philosophers, from these poets. Verse 28 says, For in him... We live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And then Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So there's two quotes here. You, you, you see it in quotations. The ESV puts them in quotes. The first one is from Epimenides. He's the one who says, in him we live and move and have our being. And the second quote there is from Eretus. He's a, a Cilician poet. He said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, what's interesting about these quotes is that neither of these quotes that Paul's quoting, Paul's using these quotes, neither of these are references to the, to the true God. It's not like these poets, uh, these Athenian Greek poets, were, were speaking of the true God. They're actually, both of these references are speaking about Zeus. If you know that Zeus was the, the preeminent God of the Greeks, that's who these poets were, were referring to. And so obviously, Paul's not quoting them to say that they're right about who created them or who sustains them or who gives them breath. But this is just simply a, a reference point, like a point of contact 
for Paul to show that even their po- uh, pagan poets are aware of the realities of what Paul is is speaking about. But, you know, they have to make up uh, a mythological character like Zeus to attribute this creation to. But even in doing that, they're, they're admitting, they're, they're confessing that there is this ultimate power, this wise creator who made everything. So in essence, they're admitting to their ignorance, but there is some truth into what they do admit and to what they do realize. And I don't want to pass quickly over the fact that Paul is able to quote these guys, that Paul knows that these philosophers and and these poets. I think this shows that for us, when you're attempting to evangelize or do mission work, um, that it can be very helpful to have a, a working knowledge of the people's worldview that you're attempting to minister to, right? That you know something about what they believe, uh, what are their beliefs based on, who, who is their God, what, what books, what are their authorities in, in their religion and in their worldview. I, I don't think it's at all uh, necessary or, or required to have this kind of background knowledge about everybody you try to witness to, but I think it can obviously be very helpful to have this connecting point um, with people's uh, worldviews, with their understanding. And so you can do what Paul did. What Paul's doing is here is Paul's doing what um, the theologian, the Christian philosopher Greg Bonson says. He's, he's doing an internal critique of these people's worldview. He's doing an internal critique of their worldview. He's, he's taking the things that they believe that happen to be true, and he's holding them accountable for the things that are, that are true in their thought. And, and with these things that they say that are in fact true, you can show them how uh, some of those things that they believe are actually inconsistent with some of the other things that they believe. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's in essence, critiquing. He's not so much agreeing with their worldview about Zeus. He's actually saying, hey, look, there are some things you actually do believe and and get right, namely that there is this divine being who created all of us. And so Paul ends here. He's going to wrap up his critique of the Athenians' worldview, and he's going to transition from a critique into a declaration concerning what their response should be to the things that Paul's been preaching. And I say Paul's making a declaration, Paul's declaring these things, because when you read this, you see that Paul's not simply offering up from some neutral standpoint a, a view that the Athenians should consider, hey, here's something for you guys to think about. No, the message that Paul's preaching, the God that Paul is preaching, demands a response from them. Too many, I think, in their attempt to evangelize, uh, leave the unbeliever with a uh, a comfortable, uh, a not a not very urgent, uh, think about these things if you get time kind of approach. That's not how the apostle Paul preached. Paul didn't leave people comfortable at all. 
This is not how the apostles pre- presented the gospel. The things Paul's preaching are certainties, certainties that these people would be held accountable for. So notice how Paul brings, brings some weight and some urgency here in verse 30. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, the Apostle Paul has, in fact, he's, he's admitted the Athenians are religious people. He's recognized uh, they have this unknown God to be worshipped. Uh, even their poets have confessed these realities. But even though Paul is, has given them and agreed with, with so much of what they are doing, Paul in no way is, is attempting to make the, the Athenians feel uh, comfortable. or, or to, He's not allowing them to find any comfort in their beliefs as if, as if the true God might be pleased with them for at least having been on the right track or something. Uh, Paul's not saying they're on the right track at all. Paul says they need to turn from the direction they're going. He uses the word repent. He says to turn Um, Their idols are not helping them worship the true God. Their idols are, in fact, keeping them from worshiping the true God. And so Paul directly directly addresses them. And and, And I think all of this is helpful for your sharing of the gospel. Note the motive here that Paul gives... For, for why there's an urgent need to repent. He said it in verse 31. What's the motive? What's the, why do they need to repent? Why do they need to listen to what Paul's saying? He says because of judgment. A judgment that is surely coming. And there's a judgment that we all have to be ready for. And so just note in your mind that the apostles do not avoid judgment day in their preaching. The apostles obviously think that avoiding the wrath of God is a legitimate motive for coming to Christ, for preaching that people should come to Christ. Avoiding the wrath of God. I think sometimes preachers, you know, you can have the tendency to try to get super spiritual right and you'll hear preachers say um, they can say things like avoiding hell is a is a selfish motive for becoming a Christian right you should you should become a Christian for the glory of God alone well I, I would agree that the glory of God alone is in fact the best motive for becoming a Christian I amen to that but what I would also say is that's obviously not the only motive that you can give somebody to come to Christ. Because Paul's motive here, the reason he tells them that they need to repent, is because judgment day is coming. Repent because judgment. 
And so Paul brings it to a close, and he doesn't fail to do what we should do. No matter what you discuss, no matter where your evangelistic discussion goes, no matter what rabbit trails you go down, do what Paul does as, as, he, as he hones in his focus onto the person of Christ. This is where, this is the goal of your evangelism is always to get to Christ. Because if you've done a lot of evangelism, you know that these conversations, they go anywhere and everywhere. And people love to go anywhere and everywhere except to talk about Christ. They, they don't want to talk about their sin and they don't want to talk about Christ. That's the nature of it. So your goal is to get there. Despite what people don't want to talk about, that's where you want to get. And that's where the Apostle Paul gets. Paul leaves the Athenians here with God's undeniable proof that he has provided, that all of this is true. Everything Paul's saying is true. All of these realities concerning God, that judgment that's coming is through the one who God raised from the dead. The resurrection is God's proof and the vindication of what God has done through his Son. The righteous and the unrighteous will be raised on the last day. The Bible teaches that that Jesus' resurrection has application for us. Jesus was raised, so we will also be raised. The righteous and the unrighteous will be raised on the last day. You'll be given a body suitable for whatever eternal environment you're going to be in. Wherever you're destined to spend, God will give you a body that can withstand forever the the horrors of of hell but he will also give to those who will be in heaven bodies that can see God and not be destroyed somehow we will be able to see God and not die so God will at the resurrection provide bodies for wherever it is you're going to spend eternity and Paul hones in here at the very end on the resurrection. God's stamp of approval concerning his son was that he, he raised him from the dead. And it's kind of, people do it, but it's kind of hard to misinterpret the resurrection. That says something in and of itself. If God raises somebody from the dead, that says a lot about that person, and, and especially when that person who God raised already knew and said that it was going to happen. That says a lot. So the resurrection, the Apostle Paul puts a lot on the resurrection as he points people to Jesus. Jesus is the one who God raised from the dead. So let's end here. Let's see Paul's preached. Let's see what the reaction is. How do people react to Paul's preaching? Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among who also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so, 
Here we see what is another proven, another uh, repeated reality in the book of Acts is when the apostles preach, two things happen. Some people make fun. Some people mock. Some people reject. But some people believe. Some people believe. And neither of these reactions should surprise you. Um, Here says that some mocked the Apostle Paul's teaching. From the book of Acts, we see, and if if you've done a lot of evangelism, I'd say even in our experience, uh, we can see how, unfortunately, most don't believe the preaching of the gospel. Most don't believe, and so if you are going to preach the gospel, be prepared to be rejected, be prepared to be mocked. But, by the grace of God, and unfortunately it's not as often, but if you are blessed enough to see it, you can experience and see the miracle of somebody being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life through the preaching of the gospel. But the caveat is the only way... The only way you're ever going to get to see this, the only way you're going to get to see the blessing of somebody being taken from spiritual life or from spiritual death to spiritual life is if you speak. You're not going to get to see this if you don't share the gospel with people. You won't get to have this blessing. You must speak and and not simply speak in generalities because it's much easier, easier for us to do this. It's much easier to talk about how blessed our life is as a result of being a Christian, or it's very easy to point out how wrong and sinful other people are. That's easy to do as well. But neither of these are the gospel. Those things are not the gospel. You have to get to the point where you're, where you're speaking of Jesus and you're calling people to repent and put their faith and hope in him. And that's what Paul did. Paul, Paul brought it home to speak about the resurrected Christ. And as a result, in being willing to speak, he, he was able to see and, and to have these blessings, to have these rewards. The Apostle Paul got to experience the reward and the blessing of being persecuted for Christ's namesake. The Bible says this is a blessing. But he also got to see the blessing of souls being saved from the coming and sure terrible judgment all as a result of simply speaking so that's the apostle paul's sermon um there's much more that obviously could be say, said concerning that but i don't think that paul's sermon to the pagans was too much different than that to the jews No matter who he's speaking to, no matter what road he takes, um, he gets to Jesus Christ. That's the goal. And so that should be the same goal that we have. No matter what the conversation, no matter where it starts, no matter where it goes, find a road, find a way, find a reference, find a jumping point uh, to speak of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, we pray that 
Lord, we've seen now multiple sermons, multiple examples in the book of Acts of how the apostles preach Christ. Lord, they are all very similar, Lord. They are all very... It, it's, it's almost becoming a mantra. The, the apostles were not afraid to show people where their understandings, where their worldviews are wrong, where their thinking is wrong. But they didn't just stop there. They were willing to point people, not to themselves, but they pointed people to Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to to do the same thing, Lord. There's so many more so many more worldviews, so many seemingly more religions, more philosophies out there to deal with. Help us, Lord, to navigate these these conversations, Lord. Give us open doors, Lord. Bless us with the blessing of people asking us for the hope that is within us, Lord, that we would just have open doors to speak of Christ, Lord. Surely this is why we're still here right now, why we haven't been called to heaven, Lord. There's evangelism to do. There's good works to do. There's people, there's elect who are yet to be saved, Lord. So surely we're here for a reason. Lord, help us to to do your work of gathering in your people, Lord, that that you can wrap all this up, Lord, in your timing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.